This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Della Millard and Mark Smitch, uh, chills run up your spine when you still hear those names. Sentenced in the Laura Babcock murder trial, consecutive sentences. That means one right after the other. We'll uh, bring in Alex Pearson. She'll decode all of this for you. Of course, Alex joining us, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, heard right here every weeknight on CHML. She's with us now. Alex, how are you today? Hello there, sir. I'm, it's a great day. It is a beautiful day. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. First of all, are you surprised that we got the consecutive sentences here? Isn't is this the first time this has happened? No, this is one of the biggest cases. There right. was a case out in um, in the East Coast. I want to say I want to say uh, Halifax, but I can't be one hundred percent. Involving someone who killed five police officers. That happened a couple of years ago, and he was given. Uh, consecutive sentences. So this is not the first case, but it's certainly one of the biggest and most important because these cases now set precedent and it becomes easier and easier going forward to to get this kind of sentencing because judges will look and compare other cases and say, okay, we looked at the uh, Smitsch and Millard matter. Here's how they qualified. And we looked at this other issue. So it's an important case. And I think it is a very just um, outcome. I yeah, if you don't, if you don't use yeah. that here, where do you use it? You know, I mean, geez, yeah. that's this is what it was designed for. And again, explain how this works and how the whole idea behind this is to stop the victims' families from having to go through the parole process. Yeah, I mean, once someone is sentenced, you know, it, it automatic with first degree is twenty five years. That's when they can start to apply for parole. But in a lot of cases, you'll get lesser degrees, and then you can start applying for parole much earlier. And so, while on the surface. You know, you hear 25 years and you think that's life. It's not actually life. The families then have to go through the process over and over and over again yearly as parole comes up to argue why this person should have to stay in jail. That's not, you know, I know that the system's not designed for the victims, but, you know, this will alleviate, I think, a lot of stress guesswork for those who are truly involved. And so for the Bosma family, certainly for the Babcock family, it is it is going to give them some kind of freedom here. Um, uh, obviously, you covered the the, uh, the uh, Tim Bosma murder trial. Uh, that being said, does this apply to them? Because none of this, uh, we hadn't got to this stage yet. So do they still have to go through this at 25 years? No. So the, the first sentence they'll serve, these two guys will serve, will be for the Bosma conviction. Right. And then they start serving their sentence for the um, Babcock murder. And what normally would happen or what has happened in the past is that once you get sentenced, you'll serve those sentences together. So if they had been given the old uh, way of doing things, they would have been possible for parole on both cases at the 25-year mark. The good thing about this and why I think it's such a a good ruling is now that that, the Bosma family will have to go through the process in 25 years and then afterwards, um, the, the the Babcock family will have to go through it, so it just it, it alleviates a lot of stress for the families. And I think so. You know, this will and, and let me just clarify here, here, Alex. This will eliminate the situation for the Bosma family as well as the Babcock family, correct? To a degree, yeah. I mean, look, the, the Bosma will go first. So in twenty five years, so they will have to go through this in twenty five. Yeah, they years. will. They will. The Babcocks, however, will not Won't have, have to, to go consecutive yeah. at the same time. So normally in a case like this, well, you know, a big high profile, they would get the sentences at the same time. And right. then we get these, you know, there could be an opportunity. It's still, unfortunate, the, it's still unfortunate, though, that the Bosmas have to go through this in 25 years. I mean, grateful that the Babcock family doesn't, but still, it just something doesn't seem right there. Well, no, there's lots of things that don't seem right in our justice system. But again, it's not designed 
for the victims. It's always about the, the rights of the accused. Um, and, you know, these two guys will appeal. They're appealing, of course, their Bosma uh, conviction. That's automatic with the first degree is, is an appeal process. So there's lots of things that they will do and continue to do. Of course, Del Millard will be standing trial starting April 3rd uh, for the accusations that he killed his father. Um, so there's still lots to go through. But again, this is the, the direction I think people are comfortable in moving. There was a, a point in the ruling yesterday. And remember, the defense, Mr. Pillay, who was defense for, for Millard, had argued that, you know, a, a consecutive sentence would be unjust because he would have no hope for the future, to yeah. which I was like, give wow. me a break. Yeah. Tim Bosma had no hope. Laura Babcock had yeah. no hope. That was taken away from them. And I think most people um, do feel that way, that I don't care if they have hope. They Mm. extinguished hope from a whole myriad of other people. Yeah. Very true. Um, The reaction to the courtroom, I guess we can't be surprised there, can we? Well, I wasn't in court for this ruling, but, um, you know, colleagues say it was it was quite intense. There was a, 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 a I think you, it's never right to say celebratory. Yeah. Certainly, I think it's relief for the families that are involved. The, the uh, Babcocks did come out and speak after to the media. They did, um, you know, this does give them some sense uh, of comfort. But again, it doesn't bring Laura back. They've had no. to live through a nightmare, just a nightmare, having Laura really um, be dehumanized because of her past, because of some of her behaviors. I mean, that is their child. And, you know, she was a flawed woman, and they've had to hear in very gruesome detail about how maybe some of her failures or vulnerabilities, um, you know, put her in contact with these monsters who took advantage of that. The other thing, and I'll spend some time on my show talking about this, is is a comment that they made about Christina Nudga. Mm -hmm. Nudga did not testify at this particular trial, and that's because she's such a liar. She lied uh, during the Tim Bosman trial. I mean, every time her lips moved, she was lying. And um, so they, go they back, get, go back, give people some history and, and set this yeah. up for them. So Christina Nugdo was the girlfriend of Dylan Millard, and she was charged with accessory after the fact, which is a very serious charge and obstruction of justice, because it was found that she helped to hide and destroy evidence. So she was instrumental in wiping off fingerprints from a van that was pulling and hiding Tim Bosma's truck. She was uh, hiding letters that he had written her from jail. He, she was hiding a, a hard drive which had very significant evidence of the two men watching uh, and standing by as Tim Bosman's body burned um, that placed them right at the scene of the crime. She, um, you know, helped hide the eliminator. There was nothing she didn't do, plus the texts that went back and forth about missions. And, you know, she kind of, it was very easy to take away that she knew much more than she was letting on. And certainly in the Babcock matter, there were texts between she and Millard talking about how he was going to get, you know, she was aggravated. She was irritated by this Laura Babcock. She was obviously threatened by her. And um, Della Millard wanted to reassure her that she was going to get rid of her. And so, you know, she made a deal after the Bosma trial um, and they dropped one of the charges. They dropped the more serious of the charge accessory after the fact. And she uh, had obstruction that she was pleaded to. And because she had spent a year in um, uh, house arrest, they basically it was a conditional sentence. So but there are a lot of people who say she got away with it. And I, I think you could argue, yeah, in many ways she did, because. To pretend you don't know does not mean you were not instrumental in that crime. Mm. And the Babcocks asked about that yesterday. They said, you know, 
here we are feeling like justice, except for one person, Christina Nugda, who is said to be back uh, in her, I guess, her parents' home of, of Poland, where she's studying medicine. Because don't forget, she was so smart. She was the smartest girl in the, new, in the uh, courtroom. And she would often brag about how she wanted to go into psychology. God help us. Um, and, and so she apparently is over there doing her studies. Um, and I think people would say, well, why, is she, why was it made so easy for her? Hmm. Did they need her evidence in order to get a conviction here? They certainly did in the Bosma trial um, because they had to get those letters in and she needed to speak to them. But, but, you know, I asked the Crown during that time, you know, is she going to appear in the Babcock matter? And at that time, the Crown said, I doubt it because she's such a liar. Like, what is there to be gained? She's not giving us anything. She's not telling us anything. But, she, you know, after that performance, which that is exactly what it was, a performance, um, you know, they couldn't use her in this particular trial because she has no credibility. Um, but certainly the letters and the correspondence between her, MLR, and her actions and all that, that all led to where we are today. Uh, and the fact that the body of Laura Babcock uh, yeah. Yeah. never found, yeah. you, you would you would think in some way that being where they are, Millard and Smitch might offer some sort of closure. <laughs> uh, and, and even, you know, in, in the wake of what's happened here with the sentencing, maybe that would help. I don't know. Uh, well, but, that but, was an aggravating factor for the judge because there was no body yeah. of, of Laura Babcock. And that was a big thing for the jury that they had to decide, like, you know, was as Mr. Millard suggested, you know, did she just vanish and disappear? I mean, how can you prove that he killed her when there is no body? But there was certainly very compelling evidence with the uh, mm. blue tarp that was said to have wrapped her body. And, um, you know, that's one of the case, one of the parts of the case, it, you know, it, it makes it, it just takes it to a new level is that Laura Babcock was the testing material essentially for this eliminator that they were so excited about having. And once they realized that they could burn a human body, they decided to up their game, and Tim Boswell was next. Now, we know that they managed to get a few particles and bones of Tim Boswell, but that's all the Bosmas have left of their child. The, ba- the Babcocks have nothing. Yeah. So yeah. It, it doesn't matter what happens in a courtroom. These families have to live with this for the rest of their lives. Everything about their lives will never be the same. It's, it's just tragic. Would they have been in court for the sentencing? Oh, uh, the Bosmas? I don't no, know uh, the Bosmas the Bab- and the accused. Uh, the Babcocks were certainly there yesterday. Right. And yeah, what about Millard and Smitch? Would they be there? Would they oh, be there yes. via video oh, yes, link? Yes, yes. Yep, they were. And um, Millard, uh, you know, giving his usual growls, giving his stares to, to Smitch. Because he, he, of course, paints himself, Scott, as you'll recall, as the guy who was just cleaning up the mess. I, yeah. I got dragged into this, he'd say. I was trying to help my, my friend Smitch, who was such a dum-dum, and... I, you know, I had to pay for this now. So he truly believes that he's just a wrongfully accused guy, and he's had to pay the price for everyone else. It'll be interesting, um, and I will be covering off the um, the Wayne Millard case um, of what more we learn, um, because it really will, I think, close the circle on on this monstrous mind of Della Millard as to how desperate he was to get his hands on the money, if that were the motivation, or was this just simply... He could do it, so he did. You obviously spent a lot of time in court with these two. You watched them. You watched their mannerisms, how they reacted to certain things that happened in court. How do you think they're processing this? 
Oh, I mean, I mean, we've I, gone, I we've, we've gone a couple, we've gone a couple yeah. of, we've gone a couple of phases in. We've gone from, you know, the show off representing him to sell, himself. I mean, he's got to be looking at the walls of reality closing in on him now. You would think so. I mean, I think they thought after Bosman, maybe they could get their appeals going and maybe they'd get out. But now it's like yeah. they're looking at fifty years in the clinker. And um, you know, Mr. Millard is not said to be getting quite as um, a wonderful treatment as he as he was at one time in Hamilton, where he was kind of a big guy on campus and people kind of pandered to him. Well, now he's just a regular old loser uh, behind bars, and he's not so special, and his money has no power there. So. I'm not sure what life is like. I just know that no longer are they partying. No longer are they, you know, torturing people. No longer are they um, taking what they want with no consequences. No longer are they stealing. I mean, these guys deserve every year they get. Hmm. Uh, it'd be interesting to see, especially when the case starts uh, in, in the uh, reopened murder investigation of Della Millard's father, if they're if if they if they if they're the same men in court that they were when this all started. Well, don't forget, Smitch will not be there. He's not yeah, charged that's right that. too. So yeah. We'll be yeah. just Della yeah. Millard, and I don't know if uh, Smitch will actually be called to testify. I mean, he was not exactly a reliable. Uh, witness on the stand the last time the last time he put him up so there's no real point of putting him up but it would also be interesting because um, he hates Della Millard they hate each other now so Mm. they don't really feel like saving one another so it'd be interesting to see what he had to say now but we are expecting I think to hear from a number of family members and I am told uh, while I don't know the specifics of it that they do have in fact new evidence so that we will hit that has not yet been heard Unbelievable. What a... It really is. Unbelievable. All right, I can't let you go, Alex, without asking you your thoughts on Patrick Brown stepping back after re-entering the leadership race. Where do you see all this now? Well, you know, I think it it was obviously death by a thousand cuts for him. He just could not get back on his feet, uh, and they weren't going to let him. Make no mistake about it. Those leaks coming out were very, very targeted. They were very specific. It was like they, they saw blood, and they were just going to keep knocking him down. The party did not want him back. Um, and I think uh, I, I would not be surprised if he runs for his seat in Barrie. But, you know, one of, one of the things that doesn't really get talked about a lot because, you know, um, the story has so many tentacles is, Patrick Brown um, did something that we haven't really seen yet and in this Me Too movement, which is someone who got up and fought back and was, in fact, able to poke holes in a narrative that had destroyed his reputation. And I think if he had just stayed out of the race and used his time to clear his name, we would be talking much differently about Patrick Brown. But he is a politician. This is his passion, and it has been since he was a teenager when he started going to camp, you know, political camp, as these these young political people do. Um, So it's devastating for him to lose that. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see where he goes. But I don't think we've heard the last of the stories. I think I think we're going to hear more. Uh, How do you think this plays out? Like from this point moving forward, is this just okay? He's off the radar now. The the uh, leadership campaign will continue after March 10th. It's it's an election campaign and Bob's your uncle. That's it. Well, he has said he's not going to endorse anybody, but his supporters are very faithful to him. They're very angry. Um, They didn't take kindly to Carolyn Mulroney, you know, telling him to go away. 
Um, that being be, said, yeah. that being said, yeah. Alex, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, if you're a supporter of Patrick Brown, you don't want him going away. That being said, you, you can't deny, no matter what side of the fence you're on, that this was a distraction and would just be sure, a absolutely. platform for the Liberal Party had they taken this into the election. Well, let, let's make no mistake. These stories would have been coming out because they are called brown envelopes and they would have been pushed out by the Liberal Party. No question they would have come out and they would have come out closer to the election. I talked about this being an inside hit. And so it was done by the party within. The Liberals, however, would have done it too, but sooner to the election. This is really bad news for Kathleen Wynne because even a damaged Patrick Brown, as you're seeing in the polling, was a better choice for Ontarians. Those polling numbers have not budged in her favor at all. Mm-hmm. And so now, now that Patrick Brown's gone, the shenanigans stop, the focus all goes back onto the Liberal Party. And don't forget, Eric Hoskins quit yesterday. Yeah. He's gone. And um, you can't spin that any other way than to say these high-profile ministers are jumping ship. Because yeah, but the, yeah, but the rumor has it we'll know more about that this afternoon oh, when the budget comes down and he's off. He's got a new gig. Yeah. He don't care. Well, they, hey, look, these guys fail upwards, no question. And oh. so he'll screw up the uh, pharmacare program that's going to be, be announced. But, you know, it, it does pose a big problem. Ford and I think Elliot will be the two top choices. For now, people. hey, let me ask you this question. Yes. How long mm-hmm. before Doug Ford says, okay, I'm out and I'm putting my support I don't, between, no. I think, behind you know, Christine Elliott? He has Elliott. absolutely said he's going to run for a seat. Yeah. And, um, and he's in a good position right now because if, in fact, Christine Elliott is in front, and she goes to him and says, look, I need your support, and I'll do that. That's when the negotiations start. So sure. I'll do that. You give me a good cabinet position. He's set. Yeah. And vice versa. Um, you know, Christine Elliott, ironically, was set to be looking at St. Paul's, the riding that Eric Hoskins just quit from, which is my riding. She was looking to run here, and she would have clobbered him, uh, even though it's a very safe liberal seat. But uh, either one of these people, Doug Ford uh, or Christine Elliott, are very problematic for Kathleen Wynne. Doug Ford will serve anybody outside the 905. Don't forget, people outside of, of the center of the universe that we call Toronto, they've had a voice and kept this government in place, hmm. while the rest of southwestern Ontario has said, are you kidding me? Do we not have any say in these elections? So they'll look at a guy like Doug Ford and say, you know what, he's the outsider, and he will fight for us. Whereas Christine Elliott's more of a of a, you know, a traditional, she's a tried, trusted and true. She's a Toronto politician. So she'll be, she will be a force to be reckoned with for wins. But I would not count Ford out. The the thing I like about Ford is that he'll clean house, get rid of everything. Let's start fresh, get the party cleaned up and Bob's your uncle. Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson tonight on CHML. And you want to give a plug to anything, anything coming up you want to chat about? Oh, Real God. quick, I think you've just burned out all your. You've lost all your gas with this. It's like go home, go home and nap for a while. You got your own show to do. Thank you, Alex. As always, I'll talk to you tonight. We'll talk budget. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm on your show tonight. All right, how much money are you losing in taxes? There you go. Uh, thanks, Alex. As always, Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson tonight on CHML. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. As you know, uh, the Patrick Brown saga, uh, I don't know if it's continuing, if it's coming to an end, or if there's going to be an encore performance. Who knows? Uh, Patrick Brown has resigned from the Ontario PC leadership race, of course, uh, issuing a four-page letter explaining why he was doing this to the party brass, basically uh, saying that um, he wants to concentrate on clearing his name and his notice of libel, that he has served CTV. He wants to concentrate on that. He doesn't want this to be a distraction to the party. 
and said that uh, this has been hard on his family. And uh, he, he needs to turn the page and uh, take a step back uh, while he tries to uh, clear his name. To talk more about all of this, Paul Thomas is with us, postdoctoral fellow, Department of Political Science, Riddell Graduate Program in Political Management, Carleton University, and on the line with us now. Paul, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. So, Paul, your take on the Patrick Brown saga from beginning to where we are now. I, I, wanna, you know, I don't want to say the end because who knows what could happen. But from what <laughs> you've seen so far, I, I mean, do you think from this point on, once they get to the leadership race, it's smooth sailing? I don't know if it's uh, fully smooth sailing, but I think the party's position is definitely improved with Brown out of the race. Uh, with him there, there was going to be a lot of... The other candidates attacking him in debates or in messages to party supporters, um, and now that he's not there, you'll you'll not be sort of uh, sifting through the past, but probably be able to focus a bit more on the future direction of the party, uh, what could be coming up in the the June election. Do you think he could have won the leadership? That is hard to say. Uh, his campaign leaked some polling over the weekend, saying that he was in first. Uh, although not uh, with the overall majority needed to win, but he was the uh, had I guess more support than anyone else running. Uh, you have to take that I guess with a grain of salt, given that it was from his campaign itself. But what I think now is that a lot of the people the the race will be decided by who is a party member, who holds mm-hmm. uh, membership, determines who has the the right to vote in the race. Um, Brown had joined on the last day to sign up as a leadership contender, but it was also the last day to sign up to vote in the race. So people who, if you go and join the PC uh, party today, you won't be able to vote for the leader. You had to have joined by February 26th. And so given that, I imagine most of the people who were jumping in to to vote for Ford or Elliott had already done so, and the question would have been how many of his old supporters from 2015 had stayed around. Um, usually parties lose a lot of members um, between races. So I, I think it would have been doubtful that he could have pulled it out. Why would he bother to have entered the race? Rumor has it that all of this stuff, there were no secrets, that, you know, rumor had it that there were a series of manila envelopes waiting to, you know, uh, be dislodged just as we came right up into the election. And he would have known that. Advisors would have known that. Why would he have jumped in in the first place, do you think? It's really difficult to say. He seemed to genuinely have been convinced that he somehow had cleared his name. Um, I mean, he went and took the polygraph tests um, and had a number of people come out and make statements on his behalf. Uh, That seemed to him to have cleared him from these allegations of sexual harassment. I think what happened, though, is that he wasn't anticipating the the other things that came out. Right. Um, sort of the, say, the um, all of the allegations about the inappropriate travel that Randy Hillier put out, the discussion of his home, and the extent to which um, his girlfriend was dragged into it, that did seem to sort of take him aback. And uh, as you said in the intro, the, the discussion about him wanting to protect his family uh, was, it seemed to be um, surprising in some ways that he wasn't anticipating this, hmm. um, but that he wasn't able to turn the page um, even after sort of at least in his mind, putting the sexual harassment allegations to bed. How is Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals reacting to this? Uh, is Patrick Brown stepping down good or bad news for her? 
I would say relatively bad news for her. Um, like I had said earlier, the, if he had stayed in the race, there would have been a lot more focusing on all of the things he had done wrong. With, I mean, beyond the question of the sexual harassment allegations, there was a lot of internal party problems, uh, especially around the nomination race. Um, we had the story that broke yesterday about the race in Hamilton, where uh, Brown is alleged, or I guess he's, he did, it's not alleged, he, there is a copy of the email, where he appeared to direct party staff to shape the outcome of the race. And so that kind of thing, having that in the headlines for another few weeks, probably would have helped Kathleen win. Mm. Having him out means that you're going to be, yeah, changing the conversation to an extent, focusing much more on which of the, the four remaining candidates is best placed to beat win going into the June election. Uh, do you think Patrick Brown will be back? How much has this divided the party? I, to be honest, I've been surprised by the uh, the reservoir of support that he seems to have in the party. A lot of the, um, I guess he he did really put his uh, stamp on it, and a lot of the people who were running as candidates did still seem to have some support for him. I mean, even um, after he announced that he was stepping back, a number of people um, made statements that they they hope he continues on and can clear his name and wishing him well and so i i wouldn't be surprised if he someday tried to make another step the one thing that's um, going to be interesting is he's still so far as i know the nominated candidate um, for the party in the, the springwater constituency and so whether he does run uh, for the party in june and then comes back and take his seat what will be interesting to see is what the new leader does regarding his status within the party, because right now he, he's been expelled from the party caucus, uh, but he's still a nominated candidate, and they had approved him to run for leader. And so whether the new leader allows him to, to regain the conservative label within the legislature, I think, will sort of give us an indication of what's next for him and whether he does have a home in the party still. Uh, do you think that uh, the PCs have learned anything from this? What should they take away? I, I, I sincerely hope they've learned a few things. Um, probably the biggest problem is the issue of, of party management. So while Brown was in office, there, and Vic Fidelli has been coming out a lot about this, Vic Fidelli, the interim leader who replaced Brown um, until the new one is elected, has been pretty blunt in saying that there are many problems in the administrative side of the party, especially around the membership list. I mean, it was quite telling to see the differences in Brown's statements from January 25th to the one he issued yesterday. In January 25th, he talked about the 200,000 members of the Ontario PC party. Yesterday, he talked about the 100,000 members of the Ontario PC party. And to have your membership shrink by half um, is not a good sign. And the number of nomination races that they've also either, uh, there's two of them that they just are going to void and redo. The one in Hamilton uh, continues to have the police investigation. And so my hope is that they will have learned that they can't allow that sort of management side just to uh, decay. Um, even uh, It seemed to be that everyone was ignoring it as long as they were up in the polls. And that is not necessarily a good strategy for the long term. Paul Thomas has been with us, postdoctoral fellow, Department of Political Science, Carleton University. Paul, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
Oh, thank you. Have thank a great you. Day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So we've all been uh, just wrapped up in the Olympics for the last couple of weeks. Uh, a great feeling of pride, a great feeling of Canadiana, especially especially with it being a, a record haul this year. Uh, and, of course, uh, you see the shots of Canada House, and uh, it makes you feel like you're at home. And I'm sure for all the athletes and families that are there, it does feel like home. And, you know, what could make this any better when you're in another part of the world than to have the Arkells just show up and start playing. Uh, they performed at Canada House in the final week of the Olympics. Uh, how did this all come about? How do you get there? Was this pre-planned? Let's bring in Max Kerman of the Arkells. He's with us now. Max, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Hey, thanks for having me. So how did this come about? Like, how, how quick did this all materialize? <laughs> it happened uh, really quickly. We uh, announced our show in Hamilton, the rally, on um That'll be in June. We announced it on the day the Olympics kicked off, and uh, we asked Scott and Tessa to do the honors. Uh, we had them make like a little goofy video of them announcing the show and breaking the news. So that happened uh, on the day the Olympics kicked off, and then the next day we got a tweet from somebody at the Canada Olympic House uh, who works for the COC, the Canada Olympic Committee, saying we're playing Arkells 24-7 over here. And so we tweeted back saying, we should probably just come to Korea and play for you. <laughs> and then, and then uh, that sort of uh, started a bunch of other tweets letting us know that they're playing knocking at the door at the end of every day to honor the day's Olympians, like at the Canada House. Mm. And then Air Canada got involved and said they'd pick up the, the tickets. And uh, yeah, next thing we knew, it, we were heading to Korea. And of course, the show you're talking about, June 23rd, Tim Hortons Field. How does it make you feel when you, you find out that at the end of every day they're playing knocking at the door? I mean, even you saying that sent chills up my spine. Yeah, it was so cool. Yeah, Yahoo Sports uh, posted a video of... Um, one of the Olympians being interviewed, and that song was, was playing in the background. Yeah, it's pretty amazing just to see where the song has showed up <laughs> in different places. It was, it was in the Super Bowl bumper uh, a few yeah. weeks before that, and the Leafs use it, and the Oilers use it. So it's, I don't know, it's like one of these, uh, we're just happy to have it. <laughs> you know, it's like the song gods were smiling on us that day when we, when we wrote it and recorded it. How do you explain that, Max? Did you have any idea that this song had the legs to uh, to attain that kind of attention? I mean, there's not many of these sport anthems that really take off. It, it takes a special song. How do you explain that? Yeah, it's hard. I wish if, if we knew the answer, we'd write a few of them. More of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. It's like with our songs, they're kind of like our kids or something. Like, you know, we, all, we love them all equally. Uh, but then it's sort of not up to us uh, what what are the songs that take off. And a lot of times it's unexpected. You know, like even our leather jacket was, was a bit of a surprise. Like we liked it, and we liked, but we liked it as much as we liked all the other songs on High Noon. And then that song kind of took a life of its own too. So it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Like I always tell people who are interested in music or like how to make it in, uh, make a career in music. It's like a lot of it's not up to you. Like all you can do is like, Try your hardest, take notes from the best, and and then cross your fingers that you know the stars align for you. How surprised are you when something takes off, and then something that perhaps was one of your closest children doesn't? <laughs> uh, you know, we've, uh, each one and each song kind of can mean something to somebody else. So Much like you love nice. all your kids, no matter how successful they are, whatever they turn out to be. Well, well this is it. You know, it's like you know. Um, with the tunes, it's, we've always felt really good that, you know, people 
you know, are requesting, you know, track 11 on our second, on our first record, uh, that was, was never a single. So, you know, you just hope that you're, you're touching somebody when you, when you make art. So uh, all of a sudden, uh, the social media goes back and forth and there's interest generated in getting you guys over there. That's one thing, but it's not like you're making a trip to Winnipeg or any place like this. <laughs> no. This is the other side of the world. So uh, just lucky that you, you guys were all available at that time. I mean, talk about the, log- the logistics of actually getting you there. Yeah, for sure. We, well, first of all, three of us had never even been to Asia before, so it was the longest flight I've ever been on, personally. And there was a bunch of logistics that needed to be worked out, um, you know, just making sure that Air Canada had flights, making sure that we could book hotels. We weren't sure about how visas and immigration worked because we weren't getting paid to be there, but um, we were still going to perform. And so right. we weren't sure, like, you know, how sticky that would make, uh, you know, getting into the country. Uh, but, yeah, the thing that was very serendipitous was uh, we just happened to be home. We've been sort of working on new tunes, and, you know, it just a lot of times we were on the road and unable to do things, but we just happened to have this window when we were home that we were able to take off for five or six days. So did you sit around and say, so, this looks like it could happen. Do you want to do this? I mean, or was there any apprehension at all? It's like, oh, my goodness, let's go. Yeah, you know, it was... Uh, I think everybody was like a little bit shocked in the band. Everyone like couldn't really quite believe it. We're like, what is this actually happening? <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, well, we've never delivered that kind of news before. There's been other times where we're like, guys, we're going to play Coachella or we're going to perform on the Junos or we'll get to open for them crooked vultures. They're like, there's different times in our career that we've had great news, but this was definitely the strangest piece of good news we've ever got. So how long were you there? And I understand it was just you guys, no instruments. You're just, whatever you took, you went. And you had to find what you did there. Yeah, the COC did a great job of uh, sourcing all of our gear that we needed to play over there. So we didn't bring anything with us. Typically, we'd have our guitars with us at the very least. But um, they are able to kind of track down, uh, you know, our Fender Telecaster and Strat and amps and, and drums but the stage they have set up wasn't set up for a band. It was, it was more of like a podium. It was about five feet uh, deep. Mm. <laughs> so we just set up the drums on the podium, and we played on the ground. <laughs> so if anybody like checks out our Instagram, it, there's a bunch. Yeah, of you're there of, in the uh, you're there in the crowd, literally in the crowd. And then it was great too because uh, you know the, the Canadian women's hockey team. They were like ready to party. They were pretty heartbroken talking to them about yeah. their, their their final result. But you know they also wanted to celebrate being a team and and you know finishing strong and uh so they were having a, so it kind of turned into like karaoke with them where they like came hmm. up on stage and did summer of 69 we were the, we were the karaoke band and it was, it was so much fun so how long were you actually in south korea oh yeah we we left uh though man the time zones kind of screwed me up so yeah. we left on wednesday afternoon and arrived on thursday afternoon mm-hmm. so you kind of like lose the wednesday, whole day yeah. And then uh, we came back, we left Monday at 5 and arrived at Monday at 5. <laughs> so, <laughs> or something like that, or yeah, Monday at 3. Yeah, you made it up yeah. on the way back, that's for sure. Yeah. So did you perform uh, more than one show? Was it a series? How, how did this all work? Yeah, so um, on, the, on the Saturday, let me say, the Friday, I think we end these dates right, the Friday we did a little acoustic thing on the patio at Canada House. And we did it around the campfire. And so it was like kind of in the afternoon. It was, it was pretty casual. But it was awesome. It was like a, like a, a short, like six-song set. Mm-hmm. We played. We wanted to prepare a few extra Canadian songs uh, besides from our own material. So we played uh, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down by mm-hmm. the band. And we played Harvest Moon by Neil Young. And then the next day, we played 
the night that was to honoring Scott and Tess. Um, and so that was like kind of a full on electric set. And then the final night, a lot of the athletes had left or had other commitments, but there was a lot of people who had been working at the Canada house, like 16 hour days, preparing food and just like running the show. And so we, we played for them. And, uh, but like Jesse Lumsden, uh, he came out that night cause he, he was finished bobsledding. Mm-hmm. Jesse's an old friend from the master day. Oh, yeah. Um, and Tessa came up and came up on stage for hollow notes. <laughs> it, it was just like, uh, it was also like a really special night in his own way. So when you weren't performing or hanging with team Canada, did you get a chance to go out, see anything or, or be a part of it in that way? Or were you pretty much exhausted? I imagine just with a whirlwind trip. No, no we, we really tried to take in as much as we could. We got tickets to go see the Germany Canada game, which we came up short mm. men's hockey. Uh, but we saw the speed skating, long track speed skating, which I've never seen before in person, which is pretty amazing the way those guys move. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't go to it, but a couple of other guys in the band went to uh, the Russia-Germany gold medal game, which is an amazing game. And we got to walk around the Olympic Village. Uh, in town, we bought a like, Korean barbecue and, and walked around. And I, I bought like kind of like, some goofy shirts. Uh, so it was fun. It was like really like we really tried to sort of – because it was was more of a sprint than a marathon, being there for only four days, we're like, let's just like go and try to experience as much as we can. We also like stayed out in San Carlos until five in the morning with Team Canada on two nights. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, we got to do that. Uh, so South yeah. Korea, uh, do they know who the Arkells are? Is this uh, an opportunity? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many like uh, North American rock and roll bands are, are playing in Korea. But one nice thing uh, happened. We had these. There's a clothing company in Hamilton called True Hamiltonian. Mm-hmm. They have those Hamilton is home shirts. Yep. They made a limited edition for the Olympics. Um, Hamilton is, and then in Korean it says home. And a local gal named Anna approached us uh, just outside the Canada House um, and recognized the shirt because she went to McMaster and is now back home in Korea. So we got her a shirt, and uh, so it was kind of cool to make that connection with local people. So what was your impression of South Korea? You said that you hadn't been to that part of the world before. What do you take away from this? Oh, it's great. I mean, it's a very, like, modern, developed country. The food is, is incredible. The people are very nice. Uh, the weather is, you know, the climate and everything is kind of similar to where we live here. So it wasn't like, we, you know, you're in some totally foreign place where, you know, things look unfamiliar. There's a lot of things that actually kind of feel familiar to, uh, to back home. Uh, but yeah, but the South Koreans, like, you know, were very hospitable. There's a breakfast place we went to every morning. And, you know, just like everybody seemed to enjoy the fact the whole world was there. Um, kind of, and, and even though it's a competition, everybody was kind of happy to be each other's presence. Uh, obviously, when you're at the Olympics, the athletes are the stars. What is it like for you guys to be in that environment, uh, and especially when they're asking for you to come and perform? How humbling is that, and what's it like to be amongst that greatness? I mean, there's lots of inspirational stories there. Yeah, you know, it was great. Um, you know, we definitely felt the love and affection from the athletes who were just, like, really excited that that this was all happening because I don't think they were expecting this kind of entertainment, at least. Um, but the other thing that really struck me is that all the athletes are so humble and hardworking, and and as much as they're completely you know, exceptional in their field, they also live like kind of pretty like humble lives. It's like they they've spent their whole life like working really hard in in, in sports that some people aren't even really paying attention to outside the Olympics. So it's not like there's um, they're walking around 
with like a sense of entitlement or anything like that at right. all. If anything, they're they're so grateful to have the support of the country. They're aware that it kind of exists in this like two week period of the Winter Olympics, and then they have to go back and you know and get back to their regular day to day lives. So. I really sense that they really appreciated the, the support. So when, when they're getting messages from Canadians across the country going, oh, we're so proud of you, we're rooting we're happy, it's like they, they really feel that because it's not like they get that every day. And um, it's just really uh, really refreshing to be around uh, people like that. Max, you were saying that you were there when uh, just shortly after the women's hockey team uh, had their loss. Uh, what's it like to witness athletes of that caliber when they're dealing with something like that what's that like yeah i mean i got a chance to hang with them a little bit you know it's kind of funny like you know everyone who saw them was like yeah we're so we're so proud of you and i know you like but they were like yeah it sucks like they weren't that pleased (laughs) but they uh you know i think you know when we were with them um at uh, Bag Check back in Pearson. And, you know, you can really sense they love each other, and which is really kind of sweet to see. It's like they're all really affectionate towards one another. And I know they came up short, but I think the camaraderie that they shared as a team and the memories of being together, I hope at least are, is going to you know, be stronger or is going to be just as meaningful as having one of All right, last question. As you look back on this whole experience, what are you going to take with you? What are you going to remember the most? Oh man, um, I kind of like be as uh, grateful, you know, for for just the, for the experience. I'm just like just thinking about how lucky we are that we, you know we, we've had a lot of amazing work perks <laughs> in this band, <laughs> um, and and sometimes it's easy to lose sight of uh, of just how lucky we are. But like this this experience sort of like reaffirmed just like our our good fortune. Um, to, to be in a band that gets to experience this kind of thing. Talk about the strength of this band and moving forward. I mean, this all started as a bunch of guys at Mac. Talk about where you are now. How do you look towards the future? Um, you know, the great thing about being a band is that there's always the next thing to try to do. And, you know, we're always uh, trying to outdo the last thing we did. And I, I think we do it in a, like a, with a pretty healthy, you know, a healthy balance between appreciating what we have, but then also going, okay, that was amazing. And how do we outdo it? <laughs> the next, how do we outdo it the next time? And so, kind of the challenge is always there, and I love the challenge. So that's whether that's writing uh, a, a song better than the last one, or putting on a show better than the last one. We're always we're always thinking about that, and it keeps it exciting. And there's always like new challenges. So I, I really like that about about being in the band. I remember talking to you way back when, and nobody was really sure after that first immediate success and that first album where this was going to go. Do you have a more clear direction of that now? Uh, yeah, we're. I mean, we're a little more confident. We, we've experienced a lot more since then, obviously. So we have a better way of navigating the world. I think as, as a band, because when when you've never done it before and it's sort of an odd job to begin with, it can be pretty stress-inducing. But because we we know kind of how it goes, uh, I think we're able to enjoy it more and and keep it rolling in a way that's like healthy and exciting. Um, yeah. Max Kerman has been with us from the Arkells. Of course, don't forget, big summer show, June 23rd, Tim Hortons Field, and guests of honor of Team Canada at Canada House in South Korea. What a great story, Max. Thanks so much for sharing it. Uh, good luck moving forward. Yeah, thanks for talking. Good chat. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.